Anyway, we're glad that you decided to join us this morning. We're in a series on the book of Genesis, especially on the life of Jacob. And we'll conclude that next week. We'll take a little postponement and we'll go into the resurrection season, which we always anticipate and look forward to. So thank you for joining us and we'll get into our new series shortly. However, <clears throat> this series has been touching on the family. And I think today's message is practical to every person because we all have struggles in relationships. <clears throat> now to be fully transparent with you, this passage is very personal to me because this is the story of two brothers who were exiled from each other for various reasons. We've been over that many times. And there was no communication or reconciliation between the two. Are you ready for this? For 20 years. One did one wrong and he left. <clears throat> the other brother said that he would be glad when he sees him the next time so he could kill him. And they parted ways. 20 long trips around the moon. And as far as we know, there was no communication. <clears throat> Last week we learned that Jacob was on his way back. He knew he was going to meet Esau. He begins to pray to God, to ask God to intervene, and God did. God crippled Jacob so he couldn't run, and he would have to face his greatest fear, and that is the life that his brother had threatened to take from him. So what did Jacob do? He wrestled with God and wouldn't let him go until God promised to be with him. And then after that was over, God told Jacob something, and Jacob returned that statement to him and said, I have seen the face of God, so in light of that, I'm willing to face anything that you bring my way. And that's how the story opens today. So after 20 years, he now has to face his greatest problem, and he's going to have to depend upon the Lord to fight his battle because he has no power over the life of his brother. What will he do? What's he going to do? Well, we're going to read the text here, but first, here's a map. Just for those of you who are curious, Jacob had traveled a long, long, long way, and then all of this happens in this little section between the Med and the Dead. Y'all know what that is? The Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea in, in a valley right there where the Jordan River comes down, and you're trapped, by the way, when you get down there. God had him right in the place where he wanted him, and we'll visit that again next week. But here's the passage, Genesis chapter 33. You can either look in your Bible or I put it on the screen for you. And the text reads this. Now get the picture. They're going down in the valley. And here's Esau with his 400 men and Jacob with all of his family and flocks with nowhere to go and a hip pulled out a socket. And yes, thank the Lord I didn't pull my hip out this week. The, the ankle was enough last week. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in the front. And then Leah with her children. And then Rachel and Joseph last of all. <clears throat> so you can see Jacob's ranking here of favoritism, right? He's going to, if they kill the servants off first, okay. Uh, he's saving the best for last. This is going to come back and bite him, by the way. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. Now, I actually acted this out in a, service, uh, in a sermon one time when I preached this passage. You have to see it to know how ridiculous it is, but I'm not going to get down this morning in fear that you'll have to come get me back up. But 
I want, I want you to imagine this. You see Esau and you, you get down all the way on all fours and prostrate yourself all the way out and get back up. And I'm going to take another step. I'm going to get down. I'm with the, now I'm only at three. Can you all imagine it? And this man's hip is crippled. Can't you see him? Y'all know what it's like to watch an older person or a crippled person get up. I mean, he's struggling to get up. He can't hardly get his hip up. Seven times Jacob bows himself down before Esau. And everybody has to go. I mean, he's, Jacob's putting it on here now. He bowed himself seven times until he came near unto his brother. But we're waiting for verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Perhaps one of the greatest stories in all the Bible. The last time they talked, it's going to bring me comfort when I kill him. He was so mad, he was weeping with anger. This time when he sees his brother, he hugs his neck, he embraces him, and he kisses him. What changed? What happened? Well, let's read on in the text and we'll see if we can find out. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? You know, that was the previous message where he had sent four big packages of animals, over 500 animals. And so Jacob responds and says, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said... I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I mean, what a transformation. What family have you ever seen get together over money and possessions and somebody say, I don't want that. Keep whatever you... I've got plenty. Now, by the way, I told you before, I worked for an estate attorney while I was in Piedmont, and it was some of the most interesting times of my life to sit in on estate reading, trust reading, and will reading. That's when you see the real nature of people come out. But here in this passage, what do we see? Esau saying, I have enough, brother. Keep everything you have. I don't need it. In other words, God has blessed me. God has provided for me. And I don't need what you have as a gift. But what does he say? Jacob says, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, if you tie this into the story that he saw in Peniel, there's probably a connection here, something going on that we may not know everything about, but the bottom line is this. God not only changed Jacob to make him depend on him, God also, also changed Esau. And perhaps this is the greatest miracle, the miracle of a changed heart and a changed life, because he saw God's face. And you know, truly folks, I think I can say this, the presence of God changes everything. Changes everything. 
Now, I'm here to tell you this is a very personal story to me. Some of you who know me, I wasn't going to share this with you, but sometimes I feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to share things to let you know I'm a real person. I also had an estrangement and still have one with my own personal brother. I haven't seen him for over two years until the past year. Things went astray in his life. I'm not getting into all that detail. But there was a lot, and there still is, a lot of issue. And so we have this constant struggle, but there's always this desire in our heart to want to go back to our childhood when we sat down at the Christmas tree and we sat down at the table. We want to have perfect relationship with each other. We want to understand each other. We want to have perfect forgiveness. We want to be able to share the lives of your, his children with my children and my children with his children. But you know, life sometimes is nasty. And it doesn't turn out that way. And sometimes people don't respond the way God tells us to respond. And then we have issues. And what do you do with that? And that is where really the rubber meets the road. We know how to deal with that. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But this is such a wonderful story. And that's why I love to read it. Because there's always hope even after 20 years of pain. Now notice, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Now Jacob has enough, Esau has enough, neither is desiring the other's possessions, and they're satisfied and content. And so he urged him, and Esau took it. Now there is some ancient East treaty stuff going on here. You never took a gift from an enemy, but at the same time, you did extend that. But Esau took it, which shows that he accepted Jacob's apology, his forgiveness, and now their relationship is restored. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Now, if you're reading this carefully, <clears throat> you're thinking to yourself, now, Jacob, you've came from Haran, running from Laban like a wild man. You've ran them all the way there. Now you get to Esau, and he's wanting to provide 400 men to take you down to his house, and Jacob doesn't want to go. And so what does Jacob say? He's still got Jacob in him. No, 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 no. You go on. We have to go real slow here, and we'll get there when we can. I'll come back to that one. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Now, by the way, Seir is south and east of where Jacob is. Do you all know where Jacob heads? He heads west in the opposite direction of Esau, which tells you he wants forgiveness but there's not a lot of trust. And we'll come back in just a moment. He writes on, he, he goes on, Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed west to Succoth, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. 
Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, where did God tell Jacob to go back to? Do you all remember the place called the house of God, which is the Hebrew word Bethel? God told him to go to Bethel. Where does Jacob go? He goes to Succoth, which is not Bethel. And he decides that he likes that territory, so he's going to live there. Now listen, this is next week's message. When you live outside the will of God, where God tells you to go and what God tells you to do, there's a price to pay. Half obedience, or as Mother Goose used to say, slow obedience is no obedience. Jacob's going to play around with God and he's going to pay a price for it. But let's talk about reconciliation. Three quick lessons in restoring relationships with one another. And these are very simple, but very profound. Lesson number one, God's desire is that we live at peace with all people. All people. God wants us, as his children, to live at peace with unbelievers as well as believers. Now, sometimes peace is hundreds of miles away. But nevertheless, we are to live at peace with one another. Listen to what Romans chapter 12 says. If possible, and you should underline that phrase, if possible, which means sometimes it is not possible. Do you realize there are some people who are impossible? There are some people who are like a porcupine. They will not let you get close to them because if you do, they'll swing their tail and they will lash you. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, because you're the only person you can control, live peaceably with all. Now what Paul means by all here is believer, especially, and unbeliever. Live, live, live at peace with all. Now notice what he says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. When someone does you wrong, do not avenge yourself. If it's hurt in a relationship, don't try to, to avenge yourself. Don't try to get even. This is what he's saying. Now that is so against our nature, isn't it? Now, let me stop. This doesn't mean don't protect yourself. Sometimes I, I cringe a little bit when I see Christian parents train their children and they say, now if somebody ever hits you, you just run the other way. Don't you ever fight. Don't you ever throw a punch. Now, you may train your children that way. That's perfectly fine. If you want to do that, let your child get beat half to death. I would advise against that because there is a time when you have to stand and fight. You don't ever start it, but as my dad used to say, you do finish it. And there are plenty of instances, instances of this in God's word. However, when there is a personal offense done against you, and it's between someone else and you, what does he say? He says, don't seek revenge for yourself. Don't try to get one up on them. Why is that true? Notice what the text says. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. As one person said, the moment you extend your hand for revenge, God withdraws his. So if you want God to fight for you, and you want God to have the revenge, and you want God to change the person's heart, stop being God. And let him have it. 
Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I might repay. Is that what the text says? No. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He will. Now, it may not be in my time, and it may not be when I want it to be, but God will avenge wrong. And if wrong is not avenged in this life, dear fellow believer in Jesus, please listen to me, it will be avenged. And this is where living by faith as a Christian really is put into shoe leather. Because we want to see justice and we want to see it in our lifetime and we want to see God act. And if God doesn't act in our lifetime, then we think that God is not real and he doesn't exist. I've got news for all of us. God is not on our timetable. But for those of us who know God's word, he has a place in scripture set up a time where he will avenge both believer and believer an unbeliever. So if you have been wronged by a believer and they never make it right in this life, it will be made right at a place called the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, which is for believers. If that person is an unbeliever, they've rejected Christ as their Savior, there is a place called the great white throne judgment where God will avenge all wrongs on those who have rejected Christ and wronged other people. Now, if you want God to take his vengeance, then you are going to have to, by faith, sometimes wait. Because reconciliation and forgiveness do not always happen here in this lifetime. But I assure you of one thing, according to the word of God, they will. Are we willing to trust God to do that? Paul goes on to write, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that's an interesting phrase. Does that mean that you know, you're putting hell on top of his head? I don't think so. I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is your extension of kindness in return for their extension of meanness is a way to bring shame upon them. One person wrote this, and it makes kind of sense. Back in these days, when people went to start a fire, they didn't go turn the oven on. What did they do? They had to go strike the sparks and get the match going. And people kept a fire going all the time, and there were coals and embers down inside of a fire. Do you all know how to start a wood fire without having a, a lighter or a torch? You go and get a big shovel full of coals and embers, and you take them and put them in somebody's pan that they carried, and they could take them to their house and set them down and put their wood on top of it and just blow and it'd catch on fire. You're extending courtesy and mercy to them when they really didn't deserve it. So perhaps that's what it means. Whatever it is, it's returning something good for something evil. Now, the second lesson that we learn in restoring relationship is that we have to trust God to change your heart as well as the, as the other person's heart. Now, really, when we are wronged, the greatest heart to change is your own. And let me, let me share this with all sincerity. When we get hurt, it's almost like there is a wall that comes up on us, 
And we can only see things from our perspective. In other words, there may be a whole field of things that we should see, but we can't. Because we can only see this. What's right in front of us. We're blind to everything to this side and that side and everything that's behind us. And there may be lots going on back here. We can't see that. And our own reality is only what we see, what we feel, and what we experience. And that is a dangerous way to act upon what just you see. Sometimes we have to wait. But we have to trust God to enable us to have our heart changed to be open, to see, and hear truth. And we also have to pray that the other person's heart is opened to see truth and to change. And fervently pray. What did Jacob pray back in chapter 32, verse 11? He prayed and asked God. He said, Oh God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. What did God do to Jacob's prayer? He softened the heart of Jacob's brother as only God can do. By the way, I've heard a lot preached on Esau, and I know the New Testament has some things to say about him. But it's interesting here to see that his heart was changed, and he also joins Jacob again when their father dies, and you see no ill will or exchange. It seems as if something transpired in his life. We don't know. Maybe we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out. I'm not sure. But God can and will and sometimes does change the hearts of people we think he can't. And then the third lesson, and I think this is so important because it's so misunderstood, especially, especially in Christian circles, is this. Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. Now, I wish I could test you all. I wish I could hand you a piece of paper and make you give me a definition of forgiveness and then have you give me a definition of reconciliation and then we could exchange back and forth and see what, what is the meaning of forgiveness? What is the meaning of reconciliation? There is a huge difference between the two. Now, let's talk about some of the differences the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You can forgive someone without ever hearing the words, I'm sorry. But you can never be reconciled until you hear the words, I'm sorry. In other words, forgiveness is something that comes from the offended person. Reconciliation is something that requires the other person to get involved. Forgiveness only requires one person. Reconciliation requires Two, it's possible to forgive and never to be reconciled. What are some differences? Let's slow here. The difference between forgiveness and reconciliation is that forgiveness requires nothing from the person we're forgiving. Do you, did you realize that? In other words, the person that you're forgiving does not have to approach you they do not have to ask you for forgiveness. They do not have to admit they're wrong. You are so angry at what they did to you that you are in bondage to them. Do you know what bondage is? We talk about that a lot. 
Bondage is an issue in your life that has so overtaken you, it's all you can think about. It's all that you can feel. And no matter what happens, it is always the dominant force in your life. And a lot of us live in bondage. Sometimes it's to another person. Sometimes it's to an issue. But we have bondage in our life. And they so control us, they so consume us, that every time we, we see something or experience something good, it's robbed because of the fact that we're in bondage to someone or something else. And it steals it away. What is God's goal for your life? It is to be free of bondage. One of the ways that you can free yourself from bondage, listen carefully, this is life-changing, is on your own part. The person or the whatever that has wronged you so bad, you, in the silence of your own heart before you and God, offer forgiveness to whoever or whatever that was, and you never have to tell them a word. You don't have to go to them. You don't have to write them a letter. You don't have to send a text. You certainly don't have to post anything on Facebook. It's something between you and God. And you offer forgiveness to them. So now, watch closely. They don't even have to know that you're forgiving them. You graciously and willingly extend that for yourself. One person said, and I don't know who it was, but holding unforgiveness in your heart, someone said, or revenge, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. The only person it's killing is you. But reconciliation, however, requires the repentance from the offender. And even then, he or she does not dictate the terms of reconciliation. In other words, if you extend forgiveness and the person doesn't know about it, okay, then that's one issue. But if you desire reconciliation, you have to extend forgiveness. The other person has to know about it, but now there's an action required on their part. What must they do in order to be reconciled together? They have something that they must do. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, I put these out on the screen, and I, this is a whole sermon, folks. I'm just trying to get it out here, okay? But in order for some, someone to be reconciled, okay, you can forgive someone, and it, they don't even have to be involved, but in order for reconciliation to happen, someone has offended you, you've offended someone, you're trying to now come back together, there are three actions that have to take place in order for genuine reconciliation to happen. The first is forgiveness. Both parts, both parties, have to be willing. You know what me means? That's the Greek word for forgiveness. It means to release, to let go, to turn over. Both parties have to be willing to release the wrong that was done to them. 
There's a second step that has to happen, and this is the hard one. Are you ready? There has to be trust. Now let me say that in most relationships, there is not a lot of trust. Trust is actually where you put enough weight in the other person to believe that their heart and their intention is not to hurt you again. That's what trust actually means. You are giving weight to that person that they won't in a moment of vengeance or spite or in a, a chance of vulnerability stick another knife in or do something they shouldn't. And can I give you a little bit of practical Christian wisdom this morning? Be very cautious with your trust. Cautious. We live in a real world, don't we, folks, where there's a lot of hurt and pain. You be careful. I'm not saying don't trust. I'm saying sometimes there needs to be some action and there needs to be some proof that you can actually trust someone. Reconciliation doesn't happen overnight. Trust doesn't happen overnight. You can forgive someone, but it's hard to trust someone without periods of time in between the wrongs where you actually know the person has changed. And until you have had that period of time and that time of examination, it is hard to give your heart back and trust. In the text this morning, this is my opinion, I think Esau trusted Jacob. I don't think Jacob trusted Esau. And I think that's why one went south and the other one went west. And perhaps that was God's will. And as the old farmer said, sometimes good fences, high fences, make good neighbors. And perhaps that was true in Jacob and Esau's situation. But you have to have forgiveness. You have to have trust on both sides. And then you have to have the final action, and that is respect. Now, what is respect? And by the way, respect has many layers to it. I'm going to give you the generic definition here, okay? Respect is when you're actually willing to put your trust in this person and you admire them. There's something about their life or their actions that is admirable. So I think it goes in this order too. Forgiveness, a period of time, actions are weighed, there's trust, and now you respect this person because of the way they've acted and submitted themselves and proven that they are true and trustworthy. And now respect comes. Now you have the pattern for reconciliation. The two can now come back to one. And this is a lengthy process. Now I want to read something to you. Are y'all with me this morning? This was a, a person who wrote about a real life experience. And there's some very good stuff here. In my experience, one path to true happiness and freedom is forgiveness. Which is why I love writing about it. I grew up hearing Randy... You just have to forgive, forget, and then move on. These words made me cringe and sent me into a fit of rage every time I heard them. Today, I'll tell you that in my opinion, considering the option of forgiveness toward whoever has harmed you offers you a great opportunity. That being said, it's important to understand that in my view, even once you've decided to explore it, you ready? 
Forgiveness is a process and it takes time. How much time, you ask? Well, that depends on the individual you're dealing with and the depth of harm that has been inflicted upon you. Let me be clear. I believe forgiveness is for you, not the person who hurt you. I need to really stress this because this is the biggest misconception I've found around the idea of forgiveness. It is actually a selfish act. It is for your benefit only. Mm. People often confuse forgiveness with reconciliation as if they were the same thing. They aren't. Reconciliation is the final step in the forgiveness process. But it is the cherry on top, an extra bonus when and if it occurs. The space for reconciliation opens up when two people acknowledge and are able to discuss the nature of the wrongs that were done and to be accountable and to ask for forgiveness for any harm or at least for an opportunity to make amends. Reconciliation is wonderful when it happens, but I've found that forgiveness is too important in my peace of mind for it to be dependent upon whether or not the people who caused the harm are able to admit how they wronged me. I have rarely heard of people who behaved abusively, spontaneously, going to their victims and asking for forgiveness. In most cases, they blame their victim or flat out deny that anything ever happened. There was a period of time in my own life when I really struggled with the concept of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And this person goes on and talks about some abuse that had happened in their family between a stepfather and this person. And then this stepfather was removed from the home and this person writing the article was able to try to be reconciled with the mother. But now the mother lashes back. He writes, while my stepfather was and has been out of my life for 30 years, therefore making it a bit easier to forgive him, my mother was another story. Yes, I had fully forgiven her, but she was still very toxic to me. At one point, she even wrote a two-page letter telling me all the ways I allowed the abuse to continue and how I was now abusing her. This letter sent me down the rabbit hole of shame and for a period of three months, it was a lot of work on my, with my uh, counselor that I was able to climb out of after spending several hours with my therapist and sponsor discussing possible solutions. I made the decision to cut my mother out of my life. Let me be real clear. This was not an easy decision. However, it was the only decision and the only solution for me. However, it left me questioning my forgiveness. If I had truly forgiven her, then why was I not allowing her in my life? Then one night in church, a guest pastor was preaching about forgiveness, and I remember it as if he were singling me out. Quote, Hear me and understand me well. Forgiveness does not mean that the person you forgive will ever be allowed back into your life again. Forgiveness does not mean that you will ever have to have a relationship with that person again. That person hurt you and hurt you deeply. Listen to what Randy writes. What a relief it was to hear those words. I had been struggling with that issue for years, but the struggle came to an end that night when I understood the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a writer by the name of Gary Chapman, and he explains 
how to properly acknowledge when you are wrong. He says, and he's, by the way, the writer of the five love languages, and I'm sure you all know that. If not, get the book and read it. It's basically a personality and how you hear or feel love. Chapman also believes there are five languages that people have to hear according to what your love language is. It's what you have to hear for people to be forgiven. In other words, you ever had somebody say, well, they said they were sorry, but I didn't believe a word of it. Maybe the person was genuine. And they came up and said, you know what, man, I'm sorry for what I did. And they were like, yeah, I bet you are. Chapman says, perhaps they're not speaking your language of forgiveness. There are five. The first is the word, or the words, I am sorry. For some people, that is enough. Once they hear that, they're satisfied with it. But there are others who have to go one step further. They want to hear what the person is sorry for. So that person would have to say, I am sorry. I should not have done such and such to you. So it's an apology and also an acknowledgement of the wrong. A third step is, I'm sorry. I should not have done whatever it was. Will you please forgive me? That person has to hear the acknowledgement of wrong, and now they also have to hear the word, will you please forgive me? But that doesn't satisfy some people. By the way, you better know who you're married to. Chapman says there's a fourth step. The acknowledgement, I am sorry, I should not have done such and such, Will you please forgive me? And now they want to hear an affirmation that they will never do that to you again. Now you would think that's enough, wouldn't you? But did you know there's one more step? I'm sorry. I should not have done this. Will you please forgive me? I will not do this again now. You ready? What must I do to make this right? Now, by the way, there is a lot up here on this screen. And when you really dig down into this, every one of us, every one of us have problemed relationships in our life. Don't even pretend like you don't. I know you do. I've already told you that I do. We all have that. Our responsibility is as Jacob to see the face of God, to want the presence of God in our life, and to be willing and able to do whatever it takes to walk with God and to do our part to reconcile relationships. Sometimes, folks, that may mean that you have to own something. Okay? Sometimes it may mean that you have to listen to how someone else feels. By the way, if you will ever be quiet long enough to ask someone how they feel about you and why they feel that way, if you can hear it after you get those first stinging words, because usually we hear the first insult and what happens to us, we go numb. We immediately begin thinking about how we're going to answer them, and then we don't hear anything. But if we can go, go into the conversation without our, our bat or our pistol or our shield, 
And we can go in and just simply listen to how the person feels and what, what we've done to offend them or how they've... Then we are able to process this issue. And then you have to discover what is it going to take to make this relationship right. God's desire is that all of our relationships be at peace with one another. God's desire is that we're able to forgive the offender and allow him to have the vengeance. But can I tell you this? God also knows that there are some relationships where forgiveness will happen, but reconciliation never will. And that's okay. Sometimes we may have to wait till eternity to be reconciled. We will. We will. But it may have to be there. But do whatever you have to to make that possible. Live at peace as much as is possible and God will honor your life. Now, did you know also that you must be reconciled to God? That used to be Trinity's motto, reconciling God to men and to one another. Reconciliation is a big, long theological word which literally means to change a status or to level a field. To make something possible where something can happen that was impossible. God sent Christ to this world and he died the death of a sinner. Do you know why? So that God the Father, in his holiness, could have the playing field leveled where he could take an unworthy sinner right up into his presence and be in perfect family fellowship with him. But there was only way God, one way God could do that. And that was to punish the sin payment. And there's only one person who could have taken that punishment for us, and that person was Jesus. God who became flesh and died in our place. And as God, when he died in our place, he bore the full wrath of the penalty of sin that God poured out upon him. And you and I, by, when we by faith believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, we become the beneficiary. We receive His forgiveness and He takes our wrath and God brings us into His family and His relationship with Him. This great message is called the good news. The gospel. That God loved us so much that He gave Christ to die for us that we too might be forgiven. On the basis of that truth, for those of us who have trusted Christ as the full payment for our sin, and God sees us as sinless, God has something for us. And it's a message in Ephesians 4.32. He tells believers, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Can I ask you a question this morning? How much has God forgiven you? Now some of us can sit here and say, God has forgiven me of everything. Past, present, and future sin. The penalty has been paid. But I don't know. Some people may be out here and you can't say that. 
Because maybe you've never by faith trusted Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to be the payment for your sin. But I want you to know something. There's good news. He extends that to you. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul where this plea of mercy is extended. He says, For God was in Christ, here's our word, reconciling the world to Himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. And He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, that we could be made right with God through Christ. Wow! What a message. And when we come to this table this morning, that is exactly what we are acknowledging today. In a moment, you're going to receive the cup and the bread. One is on top of the other, okay? So you'll have the juice on top and you'll have the bread on the bottom. I think that's how it is, or it's reverse, but you'll pull them apart. And we're going to partake of the bread and then the juice. But before you do that, do you realize that Jesus instituted this on earth right before he died and gave this as an order, a command to his church to do because he wanted us to see the blood and the broken body and he never wanted us to forget the good news of the gospel that Christ died for sinners and that he paid our sin debt. And so when we partake of this, this is what we're doing. We're celebrating the fact that he gave his body and his blood as the payment for our sin. And it's a celebration on our behalf. So as our folks come and distribute our elements this morning, I want you just to bow your head and give thanks for what Jesus has done for you. And then we'll come back in just a moment after we've distributed these.
going to read from Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this visual reminder of the sacrifice you paid to bear the penalty for our sin. We thank you for it this morning, and it's a reminder of your great love and your mercy that you extended to us. And we thank you for it today. Bless our service and each person here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.